From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Already worries greatly that the academic left, as he sometimes calls this new left, simply thinks about inequality, oppression, etc., but then really doesn't do anything about it. On the other hand, you have to be very careful when a philosopher thinks it can actually guide that activism philosophically. He doesn't think philosophy has the tools or the objective of actually bringing about kind of change in the world. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Brad Elliott Stone and Jacob L. Goodson. They've been on the show before talking about a book called Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism, and we've recently had Jacob Goodson on to talk about his book, The Dark Years. Today, we're talking about a recent book that they have co-edited called Rorty and the Prophetic, Jewish Engagements with a Secular Philosopher. Jacob L. Goodson is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College, and Brad Elliott Stone is Professor of Philosophy at Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Goodson and Dr. Stone, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Good to be back. Great to be here again with you. Well, so I know that in the past we have talked a little bit about who Richard Rorty is, and for listeners who are unfamiliar with that philosopher, we will do a little bit of introduction about what Rorty's thought was and why Rorty is important in the 20th and 21st centuries. But I thought, in part, I would start instead with the origin of this book, Dr. Goodson, in your introduction to the book, Rorty and the Prophetic, you tell a story about the first time that you met your colleague, Brad Elliott Stone, and your co-author and co-editor, Brad Elliott Stone, and the way in which this book came about was partly over sort of a, I I would describe it as almost a controversial moment at a philosophy conference. And I'd love for you both to set the scene for me in terms of how you both first met and the argument almost, not between you, but around the ideas that Dr. Stone was presenting that sort of led to eventually the formation of this edited volume. Yes, I'm happy to speak to that. It's uh, one of my favorite moments of my professional life and has meant a, a wonderful and deep friendship since then with Dr. Stone. I made my way to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale as an undergraduate in 2001 for a conference on American philosophy and heard this really interesting paper comparing Levinas and Wardy on the notions of hostility and hospitality. And one of the uh, philosophers in the room whose, whose face I recognized and whose books that I'd read I thought he, in his questions and engagement with Dr. Stone, was forcefully misrepresenting Stone's arguments and was engaging with him in very inhospitable ways, given that the paper was on hospitality. I was scared to death as an undergraduate that this is what philosophy conferences were like, and but I was also super impressed and found a deep admiration for how Dr. Stone was negotiating the situation. He went toe-to-toe with this famous philosopher. And then later that night, at the conference cocktail party, the three of us, the, the philosopher and Dr. Stone and I were talking and they, they were still arguing. And I decided to try my hand at arguing with this person that I had read for a couple of years. And, and that's how Dr. Stone and I's friendship started was that evening. So this book, in, in essence, started 20 years ago at that conference in Carbondale, Illinois. Well, and Dr. Stone, do you recall that exchange? And do you happen to remember what paper you were presenting and what that argument was about? Well, in a certain way, yes. I, you know, it's kind of funny when one event brings two people together and how different people see the events. I was already finishing my graduate studies. So although Jacob was an undergraduate, I was writing my dissertation at that time. 
And so it was not my first time at a philosophical dance, to say the least. And of course, philosophers hold beliefs so fundamentally that sometimes arguments ensue. And part of my training, at least at the University of Memphis, was to take objections head on. Uh, if you feel that you're right, stick to it. And so at the moment, I didn't feel that the person in question was being inhospitable, but rather anti-routine in a particular way. And I had already made it a habit over the years. I'd been working on Rorty at that time for about six years. I started working on Rorty as an undergraduate, and I've always had to defend Rorty against people who frankly haven't read a lot of Rorty, but have strong opinions about it. And so for me, it was one more day at the dance. But then I met Jacob that evening, and I was so impressed to see an undergraduate wanting to get into that battle. And to have met someone who had read Rorty to the extent that I had already. And so both of us are coming from Baptist undergrads reading Rorty, which is already a strange proposition. It was a person I knew was doing the kind of philosophy that I would be doing all the way to the present moment. So I think both of us knew at that time that Richard Rorty was a figure that connected the two of us. And of course, that would extend to Cornell West, himself, of course, a student of Rorty's. And so it has been a fruitful friendship. So although I don't have the same kind of, dare I say, negative view of the event itself, it definitely was the origin of our collaboratorship and our friendship. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're welcoming back Brad Elliott Stone and Jacob L. Goodson. They've been on the show before talking about their book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Today we're talking about a book that was recently released that they have co-edited called Rorty and the Prophetic, Jewish Engagements with a Secular Philosopher. Well, I'm just going to come clean and say that I am probably one of those people that you have just described that has strong opinions about Rorty, but hasn't read nearly enough Rorty in my time. And so in these conversations that I've had with the two of you over several shows now, I am coming to appreciate Richard Rorty and his thought more and more. But maybe let's linger for a moment on this question of hospitality and inhospitality. Why was that an important question at this particular time 20 years ago around this philosopher Richard Rorty? And what does it even mean to say that uh, a philosopher could talk about hospitality or inhospitality? Well, for me, it started with Richard Rorty. I had a course in postmodernism at Georgetown College, and I fell in love with the arguments Richard Rorty was making. The book was his 1989 Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. And when I spoke favorably (laughs) about Rorty, my professor said, oh, but I've presented Rorty simply to disagree with him. And of course, the winner in my professor's mind was going to be Charles Taylor as a way of thinking about the ways we interact with others. Uh, he worried that Rorty's ironism, his view that there is no ultimate vocabulary with which to describe the human experience, definitely, let alone anything really, doesn't give us the proper grounding for hospitality or for interacting with others in an ethical way. And I disagree with that. I think that Rorty's view is precisely because I do not have this final vocabulary. I have to be open to the vocabularies of others and have what Rorty calls a sensitivity to others. And so when I got to Memphis, this was amplified by my studies of Emmanuel Levinas, who also shuns these kind of Western, Greek-origined, metaphysical accounts of things, and rather establishes a direct face-to-face interaction with the other, such that I'm beholden to the other without needing to decide whether or not this other merits hospitality. And then, a few years after that, I took a course on Derrida, and the same thing came up in Derrida. 
what does it mean to be held hostage, literally, to the state of being a host? And so the paper I gave at Carbondale, which the conference was on American philosophy and continental thought. So no better paper, I thought at the time, than a paper on Richard Rorty, who arguably is one of the key 20th century American philosophers, and Emmanuel Levinas, who in the late 90s really came to the forefront of American readers of continental philosophy. And the topic was obvious to me, this question of being host, being limited somehow by the other so that I would be open to them. And so for me, hospitality means letting myself be put into question by the presence and vocabulary of the other. And so that was the paper. And it's a theme that I've continued to explore. Rorty himself was not very interested in this topic. And in a letter I wrote him, he responded saying that he would rather not talk about that theme, particularly with Levinas in view, which was always funny. So I told him, well, I'm going to work on it anyway. And he said, well, you're free to do whatever you want. And so that I have done over the last 20 some years. Well, and so Jacob Goodson, as we begin to talk about the Lithuanian philosopher Emmanuel Levinas or the Algerian French philosopher Jacques Derrida, these are philosophers who are identified with Judaism, sometimes more strongly or more intentionally than others. But that really leads into the sort of core theme of what this collected volume is trying to do. It's trying to bring Richard Rorty into conversation with a certain type of Jewish thinker, certain branches of Jewish thought. But I wonder if you'd be willing to give my listeners sort of an overview of what you and Dr. Stone were intending to do with a volume like this. Yes, of course. Our intention was to bring Rorty's voice into conversation with medieval Jewish philosophy, as well as 20th century Jewish thought, mostly represented by what you, what you identify as continental philosophy, uh, but also current Jewish political theology works. And so it, it does have chapters on people who are living Jewish authors, such as Peter Oakes, and trying to make sense of how Oakes's pragmatism relates to Wardy's pragmatism. And so the key part of the book is that we're trying to situate Wardy in relation to how he and particular Jewish philosophers have an overall agreement with some divergent views from that agreement. That's part one. And then part two is how both Wardy and certain Jewish philosophers may offer slight critiques of one another, and particularly when it comes to political theology. Um, and political philosophy. That's part two. And then part three starts with Dr. Stone's work on Levinas and Wardy. Uh, Wardy made this, this odd accusation of Levinas that his ethics were gawky and that they were unrealistic. And so we decided that part three should be solely dedicated to the, the connections or disconnections between Wardy's neo-pragmatism and Levinas's Jewish ethics and to really get at almost in a in a move that, as Dr. Stone pointed out, would have been contrary to Wardy's own desires, but really to get at what these connections are and, and what the differences are between Wardy's and Levinas approaches. And so the, the third part of the book is, is simply on Wardy and Levinas. And then we have a conclusion, since one of Wardy's philosophical heroes is Martin Heidegger, who's famously a member of the Nazi party. We felt obligated to provide a conclusion reflecting, and uh, Dr. Stone wrote this conclusion as well, reflecting on what it means for Wardy to have one of, as one of his philosophical heroes, a member of the Nazi party. And Dr. Stone does some magnificent moves in that conclusion to, to show that Wardy can have Heidegger without being indebted to Heidegger's Nazism. So that's the basic structure of, of the book. And, and those were all our goals was to put Wardy in conversation, not just with living Jewish philosophers, but also with folks like Maimonides, as well as other 20th century Jewish thinkers. And before we go to break, you said something about the third section that I just want to make sure is clear to listeners. So you use this phrase gawky, and that's spelled G-A-W-K-Y. And I wonder if just quickly before we go to break, you could say a word or two about what is meant by this term gawky, because it's not one that comes up oftentimes in kind of standard English usage. Yeah, I think that what Wardy means by it when he's talking about Levinas is that there's a sense of a kind of discomfort or weirdness even, maybe awkwardness would be another word, that's required for Levinas' ethics. And Wardy is, is 
in some ways, simply making fun of Levinas's ethics of the face and, and what this position entails for our actual relationships. I think perhaps Dr. Stone could say a few more words. I think the correspondence that he and Wardy had signify Wardy's allergy against Levinas and this kind of dismissive tone that Wardy took with Levinas. In, in some ways, Wardy, we could say, was inhospitable <laughs> to Levinas's own ethics of the face. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Levinas is critiquing traditional Western metaphysics basically for allowing the Holocaust. He thinks that the Holocaust, along with some other Jewish thinkers like Hannah Arendt, that the Holocaust is actually some kind of fulfillment of the Western philosophical project. And so Levinas starts anew with this hospitality to the other being the ground of the entire philosophical system. And I think the thing that Rorty finds gawky is that instead of using, for example, language that we would ordinarily use, Levinas coins a lot of new terms or words we would otherwise use in new ways. Words like the face, the third, sensibility, justice, and gives them new meanings. And so you have to enter a Levinasian vocabulary in order to understand what Levinas wants you to do. And of course, Rorty coming from the analytic tradition is used to ordinary language being sufficiently capable of explaining things. And so he just finds it weird that you would have to create an entire new vocabulary to basically say, don't kill other people. For Rorty, it's quite easy that we could say, don't kill other people. And he thinks that's a view we hold and we could relatively defend uh, quite easily. So why create an entire new philosophical language, dare we say, to do that? And given that Levinas would then have to redo all of metaphysics in order to say the Holocaust was wrong, Rorty finds that gawky. He thinks that we should instead realize that the Germans were, first of all, just wrong. But second, they fell for a kind of vocabulary that they knew better to hold. They knew better than what they did. And so Rorty talks a lot in Contingency Army Solidarity at the end of the book that Germans somehow came to the idea that someone being a Jew replaced other terms of solidarity that would have made a lot more sense. Like, well, this woman like me is the mother of small children, or we both love playing bocce, or we're fans of the same literary writer. And somehow being Jewish trumped all of that. And so when we look at the German case, it wasn't that they were philosophically poor or something like that. It was rather that they had a vocabulary that could eclipse their everyday interactions with ordinary people. After all, it's not like Jews immediately appeared in German culture. Jews had been part of German culture for centuries. So it seemed very weird to Rorty that you'd have to build such an edifice to point out that the Nazis were wrong. We can argue that they're wrong in so many ways that we didn't need to rebuild an entire philosophical system that then scholars would have to learn and apply in order to do that work. He rather is just, as it were, even though Levinas is writing in French, uh, for the sake of our conversation, I would say, Rorty just wishes there was a plain English way to say, don't kill people. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Brad Elliott Stone and Jacob L. Goodson. They've been on the show before talking about their book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Today we're discussing their recent book, an edited volume called Rorty and the Prophetic, Jewish Engagements with a Secular Philosopher. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org.
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Brad Elliott Stone and Jacob L. Goodson. They have both been on the show before talking about a book that they co-authored called Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Today we're discussing a recent book of theirs that they have co-edited entitled Rorty and the Prophetic, Jewish Engagements with a Secular Philosopher. Well, one of the things that comes up in this edited volume, Rorty and the Prophetic, is a phrase that gets used about Richard Rorty, calling him a Charlottesville pragmatist. And without getting too technical, I'd really like for listeners to get a sense of what that means. They may be familiar with the term pragmatism, particularly from conversations that the three of us have had before, but I wonder if you can help to flesh out what this term Charlottesville pragmatism is pointing to. Yeah, you're talking about Gary Slater's chapter, which was a very exciting chapter for me to edit and read because he's dealing with my doctoral advisor, Peter Oakes, and his relation to, to Wardy. Oakes and Wardy did overlap at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, but Slater's really looking at points of agreement or points of similar interest in, in both Oakes and Wardy, Oakes being a, a living Jewish philosopher. And one of um, Slater's conclusions is that what we find in both Wardy and Oaks is the, the need to pay close attention to particular communities and to what Slater calls small context. And in Wardy's work, he finds this mostly in Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity, uh, a, a book referenced by Dr. Stone earlier, where Wardy does want us to think about the neighbors and strangers in our own communities and, and the ways in which we can gain sympathy for those that are strangers in our communities. And of course, Oaks's work has been on a similar logic there, but applying it to relationships between Jews, Christians, and, and Muslims. And so one of Slater's points is that when you put Oaks and Wardy together and you start to think about the importance or the significance of paying attention to local community, then you have arising what Slater decided he would call Charlottesville pragmatism, since both Wardy and Oaks have a link to Charlottesville through the University of Virginia. And the other thing I would say that Slater points to is that both Oaks and Wardy think that pragmatism is mostly about the need to solve actual problems. And Slater traces this back to Charles Peirce. Uh, Peirce made a distinction between real doubts and paper doubts and critiqued modern philosophers for only dealing with paper doubts. And Slater sees sees this as, a, as another agreement between Wardy and Oakes that they both call themselves pragmatists primarily because they want to solve actual particular problems in the world. And that's what's driving both of them in terms of their methodology and in terms of their thinking. Well, and this is a point where we can take up with the last line of the book, which is a line penned by you, Dr. Stone, and it speaks directly into this question of Rorty and the prophetic, the idea of what Rorty thought that prophetic language was doing and the critiques that he had of a certain type of prophetic language. If you could, I would love for you to expand a bit on what this last line that you write means when you say Rorty makes those of us who wish for the prophetic to do something about it instead of think something about it. I'd love to learn more about what that line is saying about Rorty's criticisms and the possibilities that you see in these kinds of rereadings of Rorty. In, in the context of that conclusion, Rorty expresses concern. His famous student, Cornell West, had criticized Rorty for not being prophetic enough. So Rorty wants to solve problems, but it seems like Rorty pines for a particular, dare we say, middle class, what Rorty himself would call bourgeois postmodernism. And that's just him being honest about his own backgrounds and what have you, growing up with journal's parents and his own middle class professorial life. He wondered whether academics really have much to say about the problems that face us. Uh, needs to say, academic writing tends not to address the problems that actually face us. And so when Corner West comes out with academic books trying to claim a prophetic worldview, Rorty worries that that mixes two things that don't go together. He thinks academics tend to work on what Dr. Goodson called paper problems, and then prophets, proper prophets, call their community to change their ways. And so writing a book about how someone needs to change their ways seems very different from getting out there and 
fighting to change the world. Now, of course, luckily, Cornel West does both. He is present at protests and things like that while also writing books that theoretically ground that activist work he does. But Rorty worries that, particularly given the new left, as he calls it, in Achieving Our Country, that a lot of our current liberalism in this you know, kind of activist sense is academic and not actually out there fighting for things. And he's very vocal about this. And Dr. Goodson brings this up as well in his book, The Dark Years, that academics who particularly claim to be liberal tend to be theoretical, but not very active. So it's not an issue of theoretical versus practical, but theoretical versus active. And Rorty worries greatly that the academic left, as he sometimes calls this new left, simply thinks about inequality, oppression, et cetera, but then really doesn't do anything about it. On the other hand, you have to be very careful, and this is his worry about Heidegger, when a philosopher thinks it can actually guide that activism philosophically. He doesn't think philosophy has the tools or the objective of actually bringing about a kind of change in the world, as it were. And so he wants academics to be honest about these parts of their life, the prophetic part of their life, their activist part of their life, and then their academic scholarship part of their life. And he doesn't see all those necessarily going together. So Rorty stood for a lot of social causes, but didn't automatically think that his job as an instructor and as a scholar had to do that. And so the temptation to say, well, in Rorty's books, he doesn't address inequality. He's interested in how to see others as equals, but he doesn't address the inequality. And his answer is, we have people who've told us better than an academic ever could, what those inequalities are. And so for Rorty, if we want to be activist scholars, a big phrase that's used a lot now, we have to be activists and scholars. Our scholarship can't be our activism. And so Rorty calls on those who want to do things in the world to make the world a better place to get out there and do them but do not think that just writing about it is their contribution to the cause, as it were. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guests today are Jacob L. Goodson and Brad Elliott Stone. They're talking about their recent book, Rorty and the Prophetic, Jewish Engagements with a Secular Philosopher. So this notion that is in play here, this idea that it's very difficult to be a professor and a prophet. Dr. Goodson, I want to ask you to go a little bit more deeply in that, because one of the things that Rorty is famous, or for some readers infamous for saying, is that philosophy itself doesn't give you any kind of privileged position to really analyze problems. It's just one body of literature among other bodies of literature. Now, when I've said that in one sentence, that's an oversimplified sort of view of what Rorty's position is. I wonder if you could explain a little bit more for my listeners about what Rorty is saying when he says things like that. Yeah, I think for Rorty, philosophers tend to make the mistake of trying to figure out sort of our methodological basis or our ways of logical reasoning before we ever address actual or particular problems. And I think one of Rorty's frustrations with academic philosophy, and, and perhaps one reason why he even left to be a part of the Department of Comparative Literature at both UVA and Stanford was that he really thought that if you were trained to do philosophy, that you should be attacking or thinking about or writing on particular problems and that you should find this sort of middle ground that Dr. Stone is talking about between thinking that philosophers in a Platonist or Heideggerian way that philosophers ought to drive a political agenda versus philosophy professors simply not having anything to, to say or do when it comes to politics and real problems. So what Wardy was trying to find a middle ground his whole career. And one of the things that frustrated him was that we philosophers tend not to get our hands dirty because we're too worried about what methods we're going to use and, and whether or not we're going to be logically consistent in, in the way that we approach problems. And so when we talk about Wardy's prophetic voice, a very basic thing we mean by it is that 
Wardy served as a kind of prophetic voice within academic philosophy because he constantly critiqued and, and called to judgment the ways in which philosophy was not being useful politically and socially. Well, and I want to, using that as a background, I want to return to something that you said, Dr. Stone, about Cornell West. And Dr. West, Professor West, has recently been in the news because he was, I believe he was at Harvard and was asking if he could get tenure at Harvard. And there was a, a kind of a, a, a pushback and he was not granted tenure. And he is now returning to Union Theological Seminary. And I'm wondering if that really is an illustration of this kind of difficulty that Rorty is raising, the tension between trying to be a prophet and a professor. It's very difficult to hold those two things in tension in one life. Now, am I understanding that correctly, or would you say it in a different way? In a certain way, yes. The current issue with Cornell West is a little more complicated than that. Cornell West had been a professor at Harvard and had tenure at Harvard. He was the Alphonse Fletcher Junior Professor of African American Studies, and then he gained some additional titles while he was there. Of course, this was during the Dream Team period put together by Henry Louis Gates Jr. This is when Race Matters came out in 1994, and so it was a glorious time for Cornell West and Harvard. Of course, you have the famous fallout with Larry Summers at Harvard for Cornell West's political activities, frankly, and how he can balance those political activities with an academic schedule. That was the battle between him and Larry Summers. He then goes to Princeton. He retires from Princeton and returns to his first school of employment, which was the Union Theological Seminary. And for reasons I do not know why, he leaves Union to come back to Harvard to be professor of the practice, which in most universities is not a tenure granting position. And so technically, Cornell West was not in a position to get tenure. But for those who know the whole story, Harvard has had a problem as of late with having diversity in its faculty, particularly what we call governing faculty. That would be uh, faculty who have tenure and therefore can be critical of the institution and things like that. And so a movement was established for Cornell West to be restored to tenure and his old faculty status. That was turned down by Harvard. And according to at least certain reports, right after the announcement of returning to Union, Harvard actually tried to give him an offer that would make him a what I would call a governing faculty member. So it's a tricky situation made more complex, first of all, by West's already tenuous relationship with Harvard after the Larry Summers incident, but also Harvard's own diversity problem. And you have one of the top 20th century philosophers right there at Harvard without tenure. And so that was the issue, the problematic, if I could call it that, out of which the concern for West's tenure arose. In my own mind, of course, I think that Cornel West is back where he needs to be at Union. And the work he did at Union at the beginning of his career and in more recent years at Union matches Union better than Harvard, I would argue, insofar as Union has always been a seminary interested in contemporary problems and problems that people actually have. I don't want to call it applied theology because that misnames what it is, but it is an engaged theology. Then I appreciate very much the taking a, a moment to expand on that situation and give it more context. So I'm very grateful for that. And that leads me then to a, a question that sort of follows on the themes that we've been bringing up in the conversation so far. So Cornell West is at an institution like Harvard that has difficulty institutionally granting accolades and tenure and granting positions of greater academic power to those that are considered in our society to in some way be other not white, het, etc. It makes me think of the situation of Jewish scholars in Germany prior to the Third Reich, where a similar sort of othering happened and a, a sort of notion institutionally that says that these people cannot exist in the intellectual space responsibly or exist with the sort of same freedoms that at that time Aryan 
scholars were seen to be able to maneuver with. And I wonder, as we're moving towards break, if either of you sees those parallels within this edited volume as important parallels to bring up. The notion of academia as an institution constantly creating others that it wants in some way to exclude or disempower. Well, I think that's definitely an issue. Some of it is always that on the one hand, you have universities which are in theory autonomous insofar as they are creating new knowledge. And you have this thing called the academy, uh, which is supposed to be higher than the state. But the truth is universities are state funded. And so the political realities of any given state dictates the conversations in higher education. A good example of that recently is uh, when Donald Trump assigned the executive order that banned diversity training, right? And you have an institution like my own even that then didn't know what to do. Do you say, well, we're, we already value diversity and we've already been teaching it and we're going to keep doing it? Or do you say, I'm going to risk the federal funds and eligibility for grants, et cetera, against our government? And universities have never been able to navigate that, particularly in the United States, let alone in Germany. There's a great book on this topic by John McCumber called uh, Time in a Ditch that said that in America, although early American scholars were very active politically, so when you look at someone like John Dewey, for example, who had a political life as well as his academic life, the difficulty is once McCarthyism came to the United States, uh, you couldn't do the kind of free thinking, particularly as it pertained to political questions. Now, when you look at countries like France or Spain, or those are just two that I'm most familiar with, you still have a vibrant intellectual culture talking about politics so that on the evening news in France, you're more likely to see a professor than a pundit. And in America, we gave up the academy's role of judging culture and have given that over to punditry. And the cost of that is severe, such that when an academic enters the political realm, they are often chastised, not just by the public that's not used to having the intellectuals speak on particular issues, but also chastised by the academy because it puts a light on the academy that it doesn't want to have. It doesn't want to ruffle feathers. It's concerned about donors and things like that. So it makes it hard to be critical in times where critical thought is most needed because as Mark Twain used to say, show me the one who gives you your corn pone and I will show you who your master is. And so as long as institutions of higher education are funded in part federally, academia is uh, stymied by political currents. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guests today are Brad Elliott Stone and Jacob L. Goodson. They've been on the show before discussing a book of theirs that they co-wrote called Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Today, we're talking about a recent book that they have co-edited called Rorty and the Prophetic, Jewish Engagements with a Secular Philosopher. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. 
Our guests today are Brad Elliott Stone and Jacob L. Goodson. They both have been on the show before. They were here last time together talking about a book that they co-authored called Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Today we are talking about their recently co-edited volume called Rorty and the Prophetic, Jewish Engagements with a Secular Philosopher. Brad Elliott Stone is professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University, and Jacob L. Goodson is associate professor of philosophy at Southwestern College. Well, I'm wanting now to talk a little bit about some of the specific engagements with Rorty that happen in the book. And there are two sort of philosophers, one from more ancient times and one from the 20th century, that come up in chapters that both of you wrote. And so I'd like, in turn, to talk about Maimonides a little bit and Emmanuel Levinas a little bit. And so, Jacob Goodson, I'm going to turn to you first. In engaging with the thought of Richard Rorty, you have made the choice to engage a little bit with this person named Maimonides. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about who Maimonides was and how you saw some of the parallels and distinctions between his thought and Rorty's thought. Yes, absolutely. So Maimonides was a rabbi and a philosopher and in the medieval world. He was known as Rambam as a kind of acronym of his full rabbinic name. And he famously wrote the book, The Guide for the Perplexed, which has obviously become a kind of part of our ordinary language for talking about confusing matters. And in that book, Maimonides addressed what he thought were the most interesting and puzzling philosophical questions and problems of the day. And I teach that book now as, a, as an example of kind of playful thinking within philosophy. When we were trying to organize this book, one of my first thoughts was that we needed, we did need a chapter on Rorty and, and Maimonides because of, of a class that I took with Peter Oakes, where we focused a lot on Maimonides. I, I felt like I was equipped to, to do such a chapter. My assumption, David, was that there wouldn't be any point of agreement between Rorty and Maimonides, that uh, Rorty and any medieval thinker would have to have such far-reaching and different assumptions that it would be hard to bring them together. But then I, I found that Maimonides had a particular account of prudence that when I was reconstructing it and researching and writing on it, it, it struck me that this sounds a little bit like what Wardy's wanting to do when he talks about the prudence morality distinction and then when he critiques that distinction as well. And so I started, of course, engaging with, with Dr. Stone about this as well, but I started thinking, could it be the case that you could have a thesis defend that Maimonides and Wardy have some sort of agreement about what prudence looks like? And that's precisely what I ended up being able to argue. And I, I really surprised myself with this particular thesis, but also surprised myself with seeing how, in some ways, the enemy of their enemy was made them friends. I found that Maimonides had a really strong critique of Aristotle's account of prudence, and Wardy also had a strong critique of Aristotle's account of prudence. And then Wardy started off in early in his career accepting Immanuel Kant's distinction between morality and prudence, but then later in his career critiqued that distinction and that critique brought him closer to what I argued was Maimonides' position. And basically, my conclusion is that when placed into a complementary relationship, Maimonides' different types of wisdom and Wardy's neo-pragmatist account of prudence provides a basis for cultivating prudence as a virtue in the 21st century. A Jewish neo-pragmatist account of prudence is what I chose to call it. Maimonides gives us a sense of how prudence helps us implement different types of wisdom in different areas of our lives. And Wardy offers three instances that require prudence. He says that we need prudence when making judgments in our daily lives. We need prudence for reading for the purpose of insight or inspiration. And we need prudence for knowing when and where to refrain from, from stating the religious premises in our arguments. And so both of them have this very concrete account of prudence, that prudence is not something that you simply hold in your head and then use it as part of simply using other virtues, but that prudence always requires a kind of contextual discernment and knowing when to use which type of wisdom comes out in both of their writings when they're talking about prudence. Well, and I just, for listeners whose experience with this term may begin and end with a Beatles song, if you could give <laughs> us one or two sentences about what is meant by prudence in this conversation, I think that would be helpful just to ground this and make sure that it's absolutely clear. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the clearest definition is something like practical wisdom. So being able to take the knowledge one has 
and apply it and use it both within one's conceptual endeavors, but also their practical endeavors as well. Well, and if I may then turn to you, Dr. Stone, because the chapter that you write on takes up two areas in which the practical application of wisdom, I think, are very much part of our daily lives, particularly as Americans, the question of autonomy and the question of cruelty. And so I wonder if you could give us a little bit of an overview of what you were trying to get at in your chapter and how it applies to the thought of Richard Rorty. Yes, this chapter was the reassertion of that first paper all those years ago in Carbondale, namely that one of the issues that both Rorty and Levinas addressed is how to interact with others while also being yourself, right? There's nothing wrong with having your own vocabulary, for example. In fact, everyone needs to create one for themselves. Rorty is a big advocate of self-creation, following Nietzsche, for example. But when we encounter others, we have to wonder what kind of encounter we're having. So if you take a traditional philosophical view, which is ego-centered, the temptation is to try to understand in in the fullest sense of that word or comprehend the other. How do I get the other into my thinking, into my life? This is the ever patented problem of other minds and other people. So I know I exist, but I don't know whether David Dalt exists. And maybe David Dalt's just a figment of my imagination. And somehow I've got to get David Dalt into my life. And Rorty and Levinas both hold reservations about doing that. First of all, it doesn't allow the other to have their own vocabulary. And so Rorty is particularly nervous with the idea, for example, that middle-class liberal white people should speak for oppressed groups, particularly when they, historically, are the cause of most of that oppression. So instead, why do we not simply heed the language of the other? So he mentions, for example, why are we not reading Baldwin to understand the Black experience in America? We don't need white people, as it were, to figure out race. Others have already said what's wrong. Why are we not listening to them? And for Rorty, this is the base of cruelty, that unless I can explain it, unless I understand it or comprehend it, then it's not an issue for me. Rather, we have people saying, I am suffering. Why are we not listening? Similarly, in Levinas, I have what Levinas calls the dwelling, and my being in that dwelling is called enjoyment. And everything in this dwelling belongs to me and interacts with me. Think like, you know, a young child that hasn't yet figured out the difference between self and other. And so that the mother is simply a piece of the child. The other interrupts that. And when the other interrupts that, I have a choice. I can either heed this other, which uh, Levinas would call heteronomy, letting the other rule, or I have to incorporate that other into my totality, as Levinas would call it. And of course, ethics should be the former, not the latter. I should be turning toward the other, receiving what Levinas will call instruction from the other. For Rorty, this will be what he calls irony, that I will let my own vocabulary fall into question, given the vocabulary of the other. I have to worry that I have the wrong language. I have to worry that I've seen things wrongly than the other. And when I say, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to stick with the way I think of things and use the language I have, and I'm going to control things from myself and my totality for both Levinas and Rorty, this is cruelty. So the problem with the Germans isn't that they're ignorant or anything like that. It's just that they're cruel. They've decided to make judgments about, for example, Jewish people, didn't ask any Jewish people, by the way, and then proceed to discriminate against them for being Jewish. We see the same story in the United States. When people talk about the Black experience as if Black people from day one have said nothing about it. So for both Levinas and Rorty, We're to move to two particular states of being, and they use different words, but they're close. On the one hand, you have the word I've already mentioned from Rorty, this sensitivity, which Levinas is going to call sensibility, 
in the sense of literally just along with vision and hearing and stuff like that, you have already immediate access to the other. Uh, for Rorty, I have to be sensitive to the language of the other. I can choose, after all, not to heed the other. And therefore, uh, for Rorty, he makes it more of a sensitivity versus a sensibility. I know that's a weird wordplay there. The other one, Levinas calls fraternity, but to go back to this gaudiness, Levinas leans on this Jewish notion that we're all children of God, for example, and therefore we're brothers. And so you have fraternity. Rorty, not as interested in that God story, changes this to solidarity, where I say, okay, I have a way of seeing the world. You have a way of seeing the world. How do we minimize suffering? And so Rorty loves to ask at the end of Continuity, Irony, and Solidarity. Before, when we work on justice, don't ask questions. Do you believe in the same things as I do? The only question we should ask is, are you suffering? And that's more than enough of a reason to end suffering, that there are others who are suffering, that there are those who are humiliated because we force our language upon them. And for Levinas, that would be autonomy. That's cruelty. Why are we not learning? to use Levinas' sense of that. Why are we not listening to each other? It doesn't have to be said in a way that we would have said it, right? Because often in our lives, we wish that people would say it in terms we want, but that might be due to our own limitation. And instead we should say, hmm, the other claiming suffering knows what they're talking about. And so how do I find solidarity with those people? Even if I don't have, their vocabulary. And I think that's very instructive to us, particularly in our modern age. We don't need everyone to use the same words, but we do need to understand suffering and hear the suffering of particularly those we disagree with. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Brad Elliott Stone and Jacob L. Goodson. We're talking about their recent book that they have co-edited called Rorty and the Prophetic, Jewish Engagements with a Secular Philosopher. It seems to me that Richard Rorty had a particular view about how books like the ones that you have edited work and the limited good that they can do. They exist as a certain type of literature within academic discourse, but they're not really expected, if I'm understanding Rorty correctly, to really make a dent in the world or to bend the moral arc of the universe. And so I wonder, as co-editors of a volume like this, what each of you are hoping that readers will do with a book like this, because you may agree with Rorty's ironism, or you may want to take that in a different direction. And so I'd like to ask each of you in turn, Dr. Goodson, what is your hope for a book like this? Yeah, well, this book is a sequel, actually. We, we edited uh, almost 10 years ago a book called Rorty and the Religious with the subtitle of Christian Engagements with the Secular Philosopher. In that book, we use the similar methodology that we're using here, which is trying to force Rorty into conversations that he attempted to avoid throughout his life. With both books, I think that what we're trying to do is first and foremost speak to Rorty, scholarship that's that's been arising on Rorty, to say that there's something that really rich happens when you put Rorty in conversation with both Christian and Jewish thinkers. And when you put them in conversation with Christian and Jewish thinkers as Christian and Jewish thinkers. Again, this is something Rorty shied away from most of his life, but something almost miraculously happens, I think, when it comes to arguments and thoughtfulness when you put these in conversation. So really, I see Dr. Stone and I really staring Rorty scholarship in a particular direction that most Rorty scholars don't want to think about or consider when it comes to Rorty. I think in terms of a second aim or a second audience is really helping that both Christian and Jewish scholars sort of return to Wardy and look for wisdom and look for insight in Wardy's work. I think one tendency that Dr. Stone has already talked about is there's Wardy mostly gets critiqued or dismissed by people who don't read that much of Wardy. And one thing that he and I feel obligated to do is, as professors, is to keep Wardy's voice alive within the academy, yes, but also to present Wardy to Jewish synagogues and, and Christian churches and to show that Wardy does have something to say for 21st century religious believers and offers insights and wisdom that their own traditions do not offer them. 
And then I think thirdly, we want to carve out this space for ourselves where where we are well-grounded, well-trained philosophers who really take religious reasoning seriously. One thing that's been lost in American philosophy, and certainly Wardy here is partly to blame, one thing that's been lost is the significance of sermons, hymns, religious songs, and, and even scripture. All those things used to be an integral part of the tradition of American philosophy. And basically, at some point in the 1900s, all those things were, were completely neglected and, and were lost within the tradition of American philosophy. And one thing Dr. Stone and I feel really compelled to continue to do in our careers is to bring those religious aspects of American philosophy back into the conversation. Well, and I wonder, Dr. Stone, if you would also be willing to speak about what your hopes are for a volume like this. Yes, I agree with Dr. Goodson, of course. Over all the years we've been working on these projects, I think definitely showing that Rorty can be in conversation with people that even Rorty himself wasn't interested in conversing with. I gave the example of Rorty's amusement when I told him that I was working on Levinas and reading him with Levinas. He couldn't imagine, as he said in one of his replies to me, he couldn't imagine why anyone would want to do that. But on the other hand, given even his own view about literature and about reading, why not? I can find something in Rorty that even Rorty himself might not be interested in. And that's true of anything we read. And so for me, the real goal is to use Rorty in ways that Rorty might not have wanted. But for the sake of, let's say, Christian thought or Jewish thought or any religious thought, could use Rorty. It might be the case that Christian thought needs Rorty more than Rorty needs Christian thought. And so we wanted to have an opportunity for people who feel similar to have a venue. So when you look at Rorty and the prophetic, you have people who are working on Jewish philosophical, theological, political questions who also enjoy reading Richard Rorty. And in the case of Kiba Learner's chapter, actually enjoyed interacting with Rorty personally. And the question becomes, well, what do we do with that? And so I see it as an opportunity to show Rorty's influence to people that maybe one wouldn't have thought existed. And I think that has a real value. I think it secondarily has a value in reminding us all who make our living in the academy that there are particular conversations that our work needs to have with not just our intended audiences, but with other audiences. And even though Wordy himself does not need, never needed to do this work that we're doing with him, we all need to realize that our work has a audience that's larger than our own anticipated audiences when we write. And I don't think Rorty would disagree with that. He would say, as he said to me, do whatever you want. But I like that he never caved in. He didn't say, well, everyone wants me to write about Levinas. So here it is. I'm writing about Levinas. He was willing to let those who were interested do that. And I think these volumes do that. What does it mean to take a figure and not just show that you're a good scholar about the figure, but then apply that figure's thought? to questions that are interesting to you. I say this to students all the time when they're writing their papers. It's not enough just to tell me what another philosopher said. What does it make you do now that you've read that philosopher? And I think in all of our projects, we have done this with Richard Rorty and with Cornel West, not just trying to get Rorty right or get West right, but to wonder what our thinking can be since we've read these writers. And I think that's true of any philosopher, but definitely given Rorty's impact on 20th century thought, we're writing on him. Well, as a philosophy major 30 years ago, I took a seminar on Richard Rorty and I developed from some limited reading, some very strong opinions. One of the things that I always appreciate about having you two back on the show is that you are helping me to reestablish and reevaluate my relationship with Richard Rorty in ways that I never could have imagined. I'm so grateful that you have taken time now for this multi-decade project that you've been working on, but also thank you both so much for taking time to talk about it with me and my listeners. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
We are always grateful and thank you for the opportunity. We've been speaking today with Jacob L. Goodson and Brad Elliott Stone. They were on the show before to talk about their book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Today, we've been talking about their recent book, Rorty and the Prophetic, Jewish Engagements with a Secular Philosopher. Brad Elliott Stone is professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University, and Jacob L. Goodson is associate professor of philosophy at Southwestern College. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.